the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And rather than try to rush through these, as we as pastors, as Brad and I uh, talked about and prayed about how we want to tackle this, we realized smaller segments of Scripture is better. And so this is going to be a many, many, many part series that's going to last, it looks like as we're laying out our schedule, all the way into September. So, that being said, we hope that you will uh, make it a point to be with us here as we go into the summer. I know summertime, uh, it gets warm, you get relaxed, and you go, I don't know if I want to get up on Sunday morning. I would encourage you to keep coming on Sunday mornings here as we go into the summer. And as you travel or are unable to be with us on Sunday, our teachings are always posted. Not only on our website, but they're also podcasts as well. And so you're always able to go get our teachings and listen to them during the week if you're not able to to catch up with those. So anyway, that's my little pitch for our series here and where we're headed. I'm going to give a little introduction on that and get us into the first part of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. But before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time. Yeah, Lord, we come before you this morning, the last day of April 2017. And God, as we look to the Word this morning, we look to what the Bible has to offer. We look to the words of Jesus. God, it's my heart as I read these that the words that Jesus spoke nearly 2,000 years ago apply to my life and to our lives right here today in 2017. So, Lord, as we launch into this series, Lord, it's just my prayer that uh, we would communicate clearly your heart. Your heart that drives the words of Jesus. And, Lord, it's my prayer that each person here, as we listen to these words today and on each Sunday, going forward here through May and through the summer and into September, that we would take something away each week. That we would grow closer to you, that we would become more like you, that we would see these words as words of truth, words of life. Help us in that, Lord, as we listen this morning, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand, Lord, as as I speak, help me not to be in the way of whatever truth you want to have communicated into hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So we we have some slides here, of course, as we always do. You're welcome to take notes on what we're talking about. But as we kick off a a long series, which, as you know, if you've been around here a long time, going this long on on one topic is is unusual for us. But we're excited to do it. I thought before we do it, let's, let's get a little background, a little bit of information on the Sermon on the Mount. And the first question, especially if you've never really heard this, or maybe you've heard a Sermon on the Mount, you go, why why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, you see it on the screen, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And then Jesus proceeds to give a a sermon uh, that... 
is incredible, right? It's an incredible sermon, but there it is. He's on a mountain, and he's giving a sermon. And so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's very basic. Now, if you're like me, you go think of a mountain, and we live in Colorado, and we go, okay, so what did he go up on Long's Peak? And give this, that seems like hard to get to. What did it look like? Well, I've had the privilege of going to Israel and seeing the site where they believe he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And here is a picture of the view the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can imagine here, that's the Sea of Galilee down there at the bottom of the hill. You can imagine Jesus standing on this hillside and his disciples and the crowds sort of gathered below him and he gives this sermon. So there you have a little bit of setting on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, another question we need to ask is, how exactly should we understand the Sermon on the Mount? And realistically, there's been a number of ways that people have tried to interpret and understand the Sermon on the Mount, sort of a broad framework of how it can be understood. There's a number of ways they are. And here they are, and, and there, there maybe is a few more than three views, but I think you can really sort of sort them into three views. And so I'm going to talk about each of those so we can arrive at the one that we're going to teach from our understanding of what the Sermon on the Mount is framed by. Now you can see them there. The first one is a religious view which could be known as the golden rule. There's a dispensational view, which we could call not the not-for-us view. And then the last one is the gospel view, which would be Christ's teaching for me and you. And that's probably pretty obvious where I'm going with this. But let's walk through each one of these. And we'll start with option one, the religious view, the golden rule. And the idea of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount when we take this view is Jesus has laid out a bunch of rules and a bunch of ways that we should live. And these are righteous standards, and if we live by these, we get to God. If we don't live by these, we don't get to God. Right? And so we have to ask this question before we can even get to that, which is, am I saved by what I do? Am I saved by what I do? Well, the Bible clearly tells us, the New Testament and Jesus' own words tells us we are not saved by what we do. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so from this passage and other passages in the New Testament, we ask the question, what is the requirement to receive eternal life? It is belief. It is belief in Jesus alone. It's belief in Jesus alone. Now, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount here, we go through Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus sure does talk a lot about rules and regulations and how to live and what's sin and what's not sin. There's a lot about good works. And a lot of people who take this sort of religious view, they will say, hey, the Sermon on the Mount is perfected law. It's the law and it's perfected. And Jesus clarifies the law and this is the absolute thing that we have to live by. I think there's some truth in that because when we look at some of these passages, Jesus is clearly raising the bar in that culture. He says things like, you say, do not murder, but I tell you, if you harbor anger in your heart towards someone else, you're committing murder. Or he says, you say, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you're committing adultery. Right? So he does raise the bar. But we've got to go to this. 
which is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So once again, what is the requirement for salvation? Faith. It is belief in Jesus. And Ephesians 2 tells us it's, it's not what we do. Following some set of perfected laws is not what is going to get us to eternal life. Now, some people, and maybe even some of you here today, are bothered when we say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. You could be bothered by that, and if you're not, you probably have people very close to you who are bothered by the concept of saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And look, if the way to get to God is by doing good works, then you really should be bothered by the concept of saying Jesus is the only way, because if it's just doing good works, there ought to be a lot of different ways that you can get to heaven, because there's a lot of different ways to do good works. Why should we pick one religion over another? If it's just about good works. But, if getting to God is truly what these verses say, which is to believe in Jesus, if that's the way we get to God, and really what this means is that God has set up a plan, and God has said, I'm going to reach out to you, I'm going to make a path so that you can get to me, and it's through believing in Jesus. If that's what is true, we have to take the claims of Jesus very seriously, don't we? We have to take those claims very seriously. And we have to recognize, too, that Jesus Jesus said that he was God. Now, when we look in the scriptures, Jesus did not say, I am God, quote, in quote. But he said, I and the Father are one. And elsewhere, when, when people said, you're God, he didn't deny it. So Jesus effectively said that he is God. And beyond that, he said, I am the way to God in John chapter 14. <clears throat> And so Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the way to God. And the Bible tells us that the way to God is to believe in Him. And so it's not a religion. And so if you are, or if someone you know is bothered by that idea of saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven, just remember, we Christians, we didn't come up with that. Jesus himself said it. Second off, even if you don't agree with that, or someone you know doesn't agree with that, realistically, we all ought to concede that for those who believe that, they ought to talk about it. Amen? They ought to talk about it. And so I think our conclusion here as we think about the religious view, if we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount and interpret it as, this is a bunch of, of rules and regulations for how to get to God, we have to understand that it doesn't work. Because if, if we accept that belief in Jesus is the way to eternal life, then we have to reject the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is just the golden rule. Do unto others as you have them do to you, and this is a way that you can work to get to God. Because we know that's not true, according to the Bible. So let's move on to the second view. The second view is the dispensational view. Well, that's a big fancy word. What does dispensation mean? Well, dispensation is, is basically this idea that it, it's a little complex. I, I, I'm no scholar. I don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of it, and there's a lot of complexity of it over the years, but it's the, simplistically stated it's that God has divided history into eras. And it's the idea that God governs us differently depending on which era we live in. 
And so there's a, a variety of views on, on how this plays out in the Bible. There's, there's certain views that say kind of, hey, it's, it's sort of divided this way, and other views that kind of say it's, it's divided that way, and there's a lot of confusion on that, and clearly I would agree, right? We all would agree there are eras of history. We are clearly living in some kind of church age, right? We're between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, according to the Bible. Okay, so we live in an era... But typically, dispensationalists go a step further. And they'll say, well, certain scripture is intended for certain eras and not intended for other eras. And this scripture is intended for this era and not for that era. And the result is they say, well, that scripture doesn't apply to us today. And this scripture does apply to us today. And really, there's a whole broad spectrum of this, and some of it is very benign, and some of it is very strange, right? I I read a dispensational book one time, a number of years ago, and it said, unless you are of Jewish descent, the New Testament books of James and Hebrews don't apply to you. And so I go, hey Brad, I don't know where Brad is. Brad's of Jewish descent. Brad, I guess you have to follow James and Hebrews, but I'm exempt. (laughs) That seems a little weird. And intuitively, that bothers us. And I think there's two problems for us. One is that if if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, if it's not for us, why is it in Scripture? Why is it there? If it's something I can just disregard and say, that's not for us, I'm not living in that age, it doesn't apply to me, why is it there? Why is it there? And secondly, I've read the New Testament many, 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 many times. It's really difficult for me to determine what scriptures should apply to me and what shouldn't according to a dispensation. And that's why there's so much disagreement, even among dispensationalists, about what dispensation is what and what scripture applies when. See, some people, even of this view, will go so far as to say the Sermon on the Mount only applied to people who were alive between the time of Jesus starting his ministry and the time where he was crucified. And again, I think we ask these two questions say, why is this even in Scripture then? That's just really confusing, and that's going to lead a lot of people into things they shouldn't be believing. And frankly, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we can also ask the question, does it contradict the rest of the New Testament? Does it contradict it? It seems like if it was meant for a different era, it would contradict it. Well, realistically, it does not. And so throughout this series, Brad and I will make a lot of connections between what we read in the Sermon on the Mount and other passages in the New Testament. And so I think ultimately, I, you know, I don't want to speak any judgment upon people who hold dispensational views. That's totally fine. But I know there are many, many of them adopt dispensationalism because there's something else they want to hold to. They want to create an excuse to hold to a view. And that scripture, ah, that scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, ah, it kind of makes it difficult for me to hold that view. So if I can say that doesn't apply to me, then I can hold this other view. And so we've got to be really, really cautious. We've got to be really, really cautious when we come across dispensational views. And frankly, I think we have to look at this. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We say this a number of times. What does all mean? All. That's right. All means all, means all, means all. This verse would read differently, I think, if we had to adopt a dispensational view. It would say, all scripture, 
that fits into the dispensation you're living in is breathed out by God. <laughs> right? It doesn't say that. I think the scripture is very, very clear. And so when it comes to the dispensational view, if we accept that all scripture is to be obeyed, if we accept that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these things, then we have to reject the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is not for us today. So that leads us to our third view, which is the gospel view. And the gospel view is the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's teaching for you and for me. And so if we want to summarize what we've already said, those those verses, we can say this phrase which really came out of the Reformation, it's not scripture, it's we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we know, like we said, that John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And Ephesians 2.8-9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And so again, how are we saved? We're saved through belief. But we also know that following Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ, requires personal choices of obedience and sacrifice. See, that's different than salvation. Salvation is belief. Following Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus requires that we make choices of obedience and sacrifice. For example, in Luke 14.33, says, Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, we, we could have discussion about what it means to renounce all, but regardless of where we land on that, we know it means you have to do something to follow Jesus. Similarly, in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We all understand from reading this verse, regardless of what we decide that carrying a cross daily and denying ourselves means, it's, we have to do something to follow Jesus. There's an act of obedience, there's an act of sacrifice that has to take place when we follow him. And so if we know these two things are true, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and yet we also know that following Jesus Christ requires personal choice, obedience, and sacrifice, then we can really see the Sermon on the Mount as both a high calling of how to follow Jesus and an exposition of the deep depths of sin. See, there's times as we go through this passage here over the coming months in this teaching series, we're going to see Jesus say, people who hears my words and puts them into practice. He uses that phrase multiple times. Puts them into practice. These are things that are not just conceptual. They're things we're supposed to do. They're things we're supposed to do to follow Jesus. And yet there's other times where Jesus says, here's this thing, but I tell you that. And he raises the bar on sin. He shows us just exactly how sinful we are. He shows us just how sinful we are. And so this is how we're going to teach the passage at this church. We're going to teach this passage as being applicable to our lives. It's going to be in this context. This context of the gospel of being saved by belief. And yet having to make decisions of obedience and sacrifice to follow him. I love the verse in Galatians 5.1. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. We obey out of freedom. And so when we look at what Jesus says to do and, and how to follow him in the Sermon on the Mount, we're doing it, we're going to try to do it out of freedom. We're not going to do it out of religious obligation. We're not going to do it out of duty. 
So that's how we're going to tackle it. So that being said, that's my introduction. And I wanted to just jump into the first couple of verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So as we read before, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. And what he taught them, he began with what are known classically as the Beatitudes. And Brad's going to talk about those more next week, and I'll let him talk about it. But I'm going to just tackle the first three statements Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so let's tackle those one at a time. First, the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who are broken. Those who are broken. And you know, many times, many Sundays, I come into church and, and I sit somewhere as we're worshiping and, and I look around. I, I'm focused on worship, but a lot of times I look around. And I look at all of you and I look from person to person to family to couple and I go, man... There's a lot of people who are struggling with a lot of brokenness. In fact, I think probably all of us are struggling with something broken, something really challenging, deep, great trouble in our lives. And the world would tell us, run from trouble, doesn't it? That's what the world says. Run from trouble. Only do what feels good. Did you get that message? I get that message get that message from the world all the time. And yet, Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you have trouble, when you have brokenness. And we see this in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says, we rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, this runs opposite of what the world says. Rejoice. Rejoice in trouble. Rejoice in being poor in spirit. Rejoice in being broken. That is opposite of what the world tells us. But what the verse tells us here is that when we have trouble, we come to experience God's love more deeply. More deeply. An example of this, I think most of us probably know Kenneth. And you'll see Kenneth over here has some crutches. Poor Kenneth. He fractured his ankle playing ultimate frisbee. And those of you who know Kenneth know that Kenneth does not sit behind a desk. Kenneth has a job where he, he walks around, and frankly, Kenneth is an active guy. He's a boulder, boulder kind of guy. Last summer, Kenneth ran the Pikes Peak Ascent, and he fractured his ankle. And for a guy like Kenneth, well, for any of us really, but particularly for an active guy like that, that is a challenge. That is trouble. That is a hardship. And yet I was so encouraged on Wednesday night at Launchpad in our singles group, we, we always have a chance to say, hey, what's going on in life and how are things going? And, and Kenneth said, and, and I can't quote him, but I can give you the essence of, of what he said, which is, he said, this experience has helped me to be more thankful for what I do have. And it's helped me to see God more clearly. And it's given me a chance to encourage others. 
with the scripture in the midst of this hardship. Now see, if Kenneth sort of ran the way the world says, it'd be like, ah, run from trouble, and this is bad, and let's be really disappointed, and that's really hard. But what Kenneth has walked into is an experience of God's love in a deeper way that he wouldn't have had. And I think we all can do that. Wherever we're at, wherever you're at, as you sit and sort of think about your life, I think about my life, and I go, man, there's some really broken things, there's some really difficult challenges going on in my life. We want to have the right attitude. We want to have Christ's attitude that, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so, if you're new here, I want you to know our church is all about bringing the poor in spirit together. It's all about bringing the broken together so that we can meet together and follow Christ together. Amen? Amen. Jesus' second statement is about those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Those who mourn are those who are burdened with grief and sorrow. And again, I look out at our church and I think back over the last number of months and things that are going on and there are many of us who are burdened with sorrow and grief. Many of us who are burdened with sorrow and grief, and yet the world would tell you, run from grief. Run from sorrow. Get away from it. And the world's sort of solution for doing that is, don't love deeply. Don't love others. Don't be close to people. Retreat into your own cells so that you won't have to be in grief or in sorrow because of things that happen. But we recognize grief and sorrow stems from loving deeply. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, love deeply. Love deeply. Because to sorrow means that we have love deeply. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And so how can we do that? How can we do these things if we don't love deeply? If we don't come together and love each other deeply. And yet this again runs opposite of what the world tells us to do. The world says don't love deeply. Jesus says love deeply. And when we have deep sorrow, we come to experience God's true comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. The way to experience God's true comfort is to put yourself in a place where you love deeply and you risk great sorrow. And again, that's something else about our church. Our church, we don't shy away from sorrow and grief. We want to bring us all as mourners together and together we can find the comfort of Christ. Amen. All right, so let's get to the last statement that we're going to talk about this morning that Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, a lot of times we think about meekness and we think about weakness. Just so happens that meek and weak kind of rhyme with each other. But they're not the same thing. The meek are those who exhibit humility and gentleness. Right? Now, if you're just weak and you just get run over, that's not exhibiting humility and gentleness. It's when you have a strength and you could do something different and yet you hold back. And in humility and gentleness you accept. It's coming at you. A lot of times this means getting walked on. 
and getting run over by stuff and life. And yet the world would tell us, be assertive, be proud, be self-reliant, be dominant. Rely on yourself alone. That's the message we hear from the world. Take what you can and take it however you can. That's what the world tells us. But that's not meekness, is it? And the New Testament tells us repeatedly, be gentle, be meek, be gentle, be gentle. For example, Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, this runs opposite of what the world tells us to do. You would say, don't do these things. Go out and take what you need. Look out for number one. But see, when we are humble and gentle, when we are meek, we experience God's providence. We say, I don't need to provide it. I'm going to let God provide it. Right? That's what he says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God shall provide for those who are humble and gentle. And that runs opposite of what the world says. And frankly, I think it's very interesting. In 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is referred to as someone who is meek. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is referred to as someone who is meek. To be meek, like those men, is to open the door for us to see God at work in our lives. And again, that's another thing about our church. Our church is a place where we can be meek together. And we can trust God to provide for our needs. Amen? Alright, so let's give a summary here of these three points. I think we could just say this. Jesus calls us to live opposite of the world. The world says do this. Jesus says don't do that. Something different. The world says avoid brokenness at all costs. And Jesus says, you will know God more intimately through your brokenness. The world says, have shallow relationships and avoid relationships so as to avoid sorrow. But Jesus says, love deeply. When sorrow and grief comes, because it will, when sorrow and grief comes, you will know my comfort. And the world says, take charge. Be proud. Be self-sufficient. But Jesus says, instead of trusting in yourself, trust in me to lead you into blessing and goodness. And so now we're off. We're, we're into the Sermon on the Mount here. And I hope you can take some principles here that you can apply this week. I'll pray to close our time. <clears throat> now, Lord, thank you for the words of Christ. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount for these principles found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Lord, it, it's such a blessing to see these connect with the rest of Scripture. And Lord, we just declare to you this morning, we, we understand from Scripture what you've given us and what has been passed on to us that it's by faith we're saved, by your grace. And our faith is in Christ alone in a free gift of salvation that doesn't depend on us doing good religious works. God, we thank you for reaching out to us. God, thank you that you made a plan so that we could have eternal life, that we don't have to make a plan. We don't have to follow steps of religion to get to you. 
And Lord, I, I, I thank you for uh, these statements as, as Jesus launched into the Beatitudes and he turned the world's thinking on its ear. Lord, help us as a church, help us to be people who embrace the idea of, of being poor in spirit and instead of trying to be like the world and, and deny that there's broken things and trouble going on in our lives. Help us to embrace the fact that there is and that we can walk together and follow you and trust you in it. And Lord, as we face sorrow, help us to come alongside each other and, and mourn together to share our sorrow and our grief. Help us to love deeply, even so that we may experience that, Lord. And help us to be meek. Help us to be gentle. Help us to be humble. Help us not to be proud. Help us not to be running over others to take what we need. Help us to trust you to provide for us, to provide for our needs, and help us to do that together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.